Well, good morning. Now, oh, come on, we went back to golf reply there. Good morning. I know you've had your donuts, you've already heard one sermon, but let's get geared up again. Uh, I'm excited for you, and I just, at the beginning, let me just say how much I appreciate Mount Hermon, and I would encourage you, um, pay attention, not just here, but really more in your time out there. I think God speaks in this place like few other places on the planet. And, and I mean that. I, I'm not saying you're going to hear audible voice on the trail, but I think God's used, I know in my life, God's used Mount Hermon over the years, times that I've met with him here. In fact, I wouldn't be in the Bay Area if it wasn't for Mount Hermon. I can say that unequivocally. First time I ever came to the Bay Area was Mount Hermon. Uh, Dallas Seminary does a week. I don't know if they still do that. Uh, they used to do a week, and so I came out with Dallas Seminary and uh, spoke for a week and met Dave Burns, and he said, hey, why don't you come next year? We're, we got Labor Day camp. So I came the next year for a Labor Day camp this weekend, and I brought two of my kids. This is about 15, 16 years ago. They were young, and so I brought two of them with me, and I added on one day, and we went up to San Francisco. And first time I'd been there, and I took them, I still remember, we did San Francisco in one day. I walked them to death, made them see everything. I still remember it was 9 o'clock at night, we were waiting in line, we get on the cable car, and they're freezing. They kept going, Dad, why is it so cold? It's summer. And I was like, I I don't know. It it must be different here in the South, it's not this way. And, And they're on the cable car, and all day long they were like, do we have to do this? And I kept telling them, Yes, you'll probably never see this again in your life. Now, when we moved here years later, every time we go up to the city, my daughter will say to my son, look, Drew, you'll never see this again in your life. (laughs) I always tell her, I'm just being a good dad. You know, we went that weekend, I came with my family the next year, spoke, we were at family camp, and then it was a couple years after that, I was sharing the week with Chip Ingram. He was a morning speaker, I was the evening speaker, and I was looking forward to it. Chip and I had known each other some over the years, and all week he wasn't here. He would speak and then leave, and, and finally we got one day, and I said, Chip, what's going on? He goes, oh, I'm not in Atlanta anymore. I just took this church over the hill. And he was describing, he says, two churches that came together, and, and, and as he started talking to everything, I was like, whoa. And I'll, I'll never forget, we left after the conversation, and Lee said, well, what do you think about all that? And I said, man, I wouldn't want to touch that church with a 10-foot pole. That that sounds like a lot of work. Well, that's Venture Christian Church that in a couple of years, Chip, I went and partnered with him there, and then uh, we went back to the South. So I've moved to California twice, and I have seven kids. Nobody moves this way from the South. Everybody moves that way. If you want to make sure financially you are downwardly mobile, move to California twice. I can promise you that. People ask me, they're like, what's your retirement plan? And I said, my retirement plan is to be nice to my children. (laughs) That's really, that's it at this point because uh, they're going to have to take care of us. I I would say all that though, as I look at the journey of my life, we are here in California because I think there is not a better spot on the planet, especially Northern California, to be able to reach people of impact who then can reach the rest of the world. The whole world is coming here. And the people that come here are the idea makers. They're the influencers. They're the ones who are bringing things that shape everything on the planet. So if a revival broke out here, 
I think it could have worldwide impact. And I, I hear from a lot of people, we have them in our church, and I get it, a lot of people are moving other places. I can't fathom wanting to live anywhere else because I think this is the front line of what Jesus Christ wants to do on this planet. And I'm so excited about being here. Yeah. And I say that, and, and here's where I just come back to my first point. I say that because I would have never had the eyes to see that if God had not met me on these grounds of Mount Hermon so many times over the years. And I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're facing. But based on the last year and a half, a lot of us have dealt with some serious stuff. Take the next few days. Get some time alone with him. Just get quiet. It, it, it may be the greatest takeaway you have out of this whole weekend. Uh, Gary and I, we are absolutely committed to bringing God's word. But it may be more powerful to just have some time in his presence. And that's been my prayer for you guys. My prayer over the next few days, because I can't think of a time period where people need it more, and I applaud you that you took the time and you came, because I think God's going to do something through this for you. Let's take a moment. Let's just pray to that end. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you. I thank you for Mount Hermon. Um, I thank you for how you have used it for generations. So many people have made life commitments to you here. So many people have had their eyes opened, the way Gary talked about, to see you for the first time here. Marriages have been saved here. Relationships renewed. New calling in life. Lord, I pray over the course of the next few days, would you just move as only you can? I pray that we would be quiet and still before you. Lord, I pray for maybe someone here who's felt really far from you or they're really discouraged right now. Somebody who's seeking an answer. Somebody who's heartbroken. Lord, I pray this would be a special weekend for them because they had time with you. Lord, as we open your word now, I pray, would you speak through it? Thank you for Paul his passion, his perspective. I pray that you'd help me capture it and help us capture it together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. And as I, I said earlier, you know, I, I spent the summer really just almost reading the whole book every day. The whole book of Philippians. And it's interesting, the book of Philippians, I think it's the most memorized book in the Bible. There's probably more verses out of Philippians that you naturally know, especially for the size of it. It's amazing how many powerful punches these different verses that we know. And, and as I read through it, I think one of the reasons we love it, it's one of those books that's up. I mean, one of the themes of it is around joy. And you look at this little book of Philippians. Uh, Paul is writing it around 62 AD, scholars think. And he's writing this church in Philippi, and if you read in Acts, Acts 16, 17, you can see when he planted the church, Paul would go into these different cities, and he was going into Macedonia, and usually he would go into a city and he'd go to the synagogue, and at the synagogue find people that were at least God-fearers, 
and teach them the gospel and out of that plant a church. Philippi didn't have a synagogue. I mean, it was that secular a city. In fact, the only group he finds, there's a women's Bible study. Women's group of God-fearers who met under a group of trees and Paul started there. And, And he and Silas end up in prison and you know the story. In prison that night, great earthquake. The jailer's about to take his own life and he comes to Christ with his family. That's the only background we have of this church. This jailer and his family and this group of women, Lydia, who was one of them, she was a wealthy woman, opened up her home. They plant this church of Philippians. Unbelievable church. It's one of those churches, when you're reading Paul's letters, usually he's having to fix something in the church. In Corinth, they've got issues with spiritual gifts, issues with sexuality. Romans, he's laying out the gospel, especially with Jews and Greeks, and how do they come together with that? Galatians, he's taking on the, the Judaizers and all that. I mean, in all these different letters, Paul's having to fix something in the church. Philippians, there's really not much to fix. They've got issues, but it's a great church. And the thing that stood out to me is not just the church, it's Paul's perspective as he's writing the church, because he's in a Roman jail. He's waiting to go on trial before Nero, crazy emperor, doesn't know if he'll live or die, chained to a guard most of the hours of the day under house arrest. And and as I thought about Paul, he's in this setting, he's writing this book with this unbelievable joy, this great perspective, all these verses that we quote, and and it just rolls off of him, and I'm reading through this book, and I'm grinding all the time. I'm grinding about I can't go outside. I'm grinding about I have to wear a mask. I'm grinding about what's going on to me. And he's sitting there and he's got this great joy and he's about to go on trial for his life. And there's part of me as I'm reading through it, I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why don't I have that perspective more? And again, I I love what Gary said about no condemnation. And I don't say it as condemnation, but man, I, I gotta tell you, it was convicting. To go, how do I get the kind of perspective that a guy like Paul in Philippians 1, at the core of it, he says, here's what it all boils down to. For me to live is <laughs> Christ. Everything's about Christ. All of life is about Christ. It's all what Christ is doing. And so he has a natural joy that's not based on circumstances. See, I realized I'm a pretty happy person But happiness can come and go with circumstances. Paul was a joyful person. And his joy didn't ride up and down based on the circumstances because it was always based on what Christ was doing. Philippians 1, he calls them to that. And then in Philippians 2, he turns and, and he says, I want you guys to make my joy complete. I want to actually grow in this joy. And when we look at it, you know, I think about my joy. It's easy for me to be joyful when I think about just me and Jesus. Here's where it gets hard when I introduce other people into the mix. That's where the challenge kicks in, especially other Christians. An interesting church, church people. And I say that as a pastor. Uh, I read one person said that uh, people in the church are like porcupines in a snowstorm. We need each other to keep warm, but we prick each other if we get too close. 
I love the perspective of uh, writer Heather King. She, she's an NPR commentator. She was an alcoholic, and God used the church, God used the gospel for her to get sober, but also for her to come to Christ. But as she started coming to church, she looked around and she had this problem with it. Listen to her words. She said, my first impulse was to think, dear God, I don't want to get sober, or in this case, worship with these people. These nutcases or boring people or people with different politics or taste in music, food, books, whatever. Nothing shadows our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we're thrown in with extremely unpromising people. People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves. People who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he loves everyone else. Those are powerful words. I, I love her honesty in that. As we come together, and I think there's this part of it, man, we all love coming to Christ, and then you look around and you go, oh, wait, you brought all of them too? And we're together in this? And so as Paul's writing this church in Philippi, he says, man, I, my life is about Christ. Now, I want you to be able to experience this kind of life as well, but you have to experience it together. So look what he says in, in verse one, this life together in Christ. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and uh, that Greek word if there, the I in that, it, it also can be translated since. Paul's not wondering if these things are true. He's saying because you've experienced these things. Because you've had encouragement from Christ. Because you know the comfort of God's love. Because you participated in the life of the Holy Spirit. Because you've had affection and sympathy. All these things, because they're true, look what he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So since you've experienced that, and you can see the point in your note, because of what we experience in Christ, we collectively choose to be united, loving, and like-minded. Everything that he is saying is not a pep talk of how to go do this. It's, it's based on what Christ has already done in our life. It's based on the gospel. Everything that Paul ever calls you to in a command it's always based on, let me tell you the gospel of what Christ has done. Now, because Christ has done this, this is what we're called to do. And if you look at that, those three things he calls us to, united, loving, and like-minded. United, first thing I'd say with that, unity does not mean uniformity. Praise God. Now, it's often how the world sees us. They kind of present us like the handmaid's tale, you know, where, where it's uniformity and we're all constricted in that. One of the things I love, the beauty of the gospel, when you think about it, for over 2,000 years, and the beauty of, of Paul, especially, who planted all these churches. You ever notice that he never over-prescribes? And here's what I mean with that. 
When, when he's telling how the church should be set up, he's very strong on the doctrine. He's very strong on the basis of the church. He gives some instruction on the structure about it, but there's a lot of room for variation after that. And part of it is God knew that his church was going to last for thousands of years. It was going to be in all different contexts and all different countries and all different viewpoints and all different people. And so he's very prescriptive. He's very direct on the things that matter most. And then he gives a lot of room for variation outside of that. Now, often, what do we do, though? We not only hold on to the things that are very direct, but the things that we kind of prescribe the way we like to do church, we want everybody else to do it exactly that way, too. And as Paul looks at it, he goes, yeah, but if you're going to come together, you've got to be united. It's probably not going to be uniform. You don't all look the same. I mean, even in that church, there was slave and free people. There were rich and poor people, men and women. There were people from all different nations. That's one of the things I love about living in the Bay Area. I love going to church. I love looking out and, and just walking the halls of the church and hearing different languages and people from all over the world. And yet, when we hit those differences at times, man, it's easy to divide. And boy, have we felt it the last year and a half, haven't we? I mean, we're, we're just prone to that. You know, the old joke of the guy that uh, was living on an island all alone, and they finally rescued him. And when they pulled up, there were three huts that were there. And they asked him, like, what's with the three huts? And he says, oh, well, that, that's my house that I built. And they said, oh, okay. They said, what's the second hut? He said, well, that's the church. That's my church I go to. They said, what's the third hut? And he said, well, that's the church I used to go to, but I don't like how they do things anymore. <laughs> I mean, we just have a propensity around that. But, but remember, that's not what united us to begin with. It's Christ that unites us. With that as well, loving does not just mean feelings, but rather attitude and actions. Loving's not feeling. How many of you... When you go to church on a Sunday morning, how many of you just naturally pull in the parking lot and you're just in a loving mood? You just love, oh, I love everybody I see. And for me, at least, isn't it always, it seems like we have more fights as a couple on the way to church than any other time. And then invariably you pull in and you see the one person you really don't want to see this week. I mean, that hard to love person at church. And, and so when Paul talks about this unity and that, he's not talking about these ooey-gooey feelings. It's really no different than any other relationship. You know, I've been married 30 years. I love my wife, passionate about her. I can still remember the day we got married. She, she was not quite 21. I married her young. I knew if she got much older, she'd wise up real quick. And, and passionately in love. But guys, if you've been married very long, do you walk around every day just with that passionate feeling all the time? And the same is true at church. You're not always going to be feeling it. Love is an attitude, though. It's actions that we have. Third thing, like-minded does not mean we have the same opinions about everything, but rather we have the same way of approaching everything. And this one's critical. 
When Paul tells them to be like-minded, it doesn't mean that suddenly we're going to all have the exact same opinion about everything. And again, if the last couple of years have shown us anything, people within the church have a lot of different opinions about everything. I'll just take COVID as one. And I'll be real clear here. I'm not advocating any position on this. I'm just telling you the, the stats that are out there. Nate Silver is a uh, guy who does polling and tracking, does a lot of political polling and that, secular guy in that, but he's, he's pretty accurate in it. And Nate Silver listed out just a few weeks ago, he said, as we've been polling adults in the United States regarding COVID, here are the kind of five major groups that have broken out. Now, as I walk through this, there'll be a group that you identify with. You'll be going, yes. There'll be a group that you do not identify. As I told my church when we went through this, you're not allowed to boo any group. Okay? It's because we disagree on these things. As you look at it, he said there's 25% of adults in America who've been vaccinated but they are not ready to return to normal. They think we've opened too fast and they would actually want us to have more lockdowns and more restrictions. 30% are vaccinated and they're kind of watching Delta and they're in favor of modest restrictions, masking if needed. 15% are vaccinated and they're done with everything. No restrictions, we are done with the pandemic. 25% who are unvaccinated and they're just against any restrictions. And then 5% who are unvaccinated, but they favor strong restrictions because they're probably immunocompromised. There's some reason they can't take the vaccine. And so they're scared of the virus and they would want more lockdowns in that. Now, as you go through that, again, there's probably one of the groups that you go, yeah, that, that's probably me. And there's probably one of the groups that you go, I don't think like those people. And here's the reality. They're all in the church. They're all here. And, and, and there's this healthy place of just stepping back and go, you know, people have different opinions than me. Paul is not saying here, everybody's got to come to the same opinion. What he is saying, and here's where like-minded steps in. We come with the same approach. We come with the same mindset, no matter what your opinion is. And you go, well, what is that mindset? He goes, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. See, he says, we've got this church, and you've got all different opinions, you've got different mindsets, you've come from different places on the planet, you've come from different backgrounds, a lot of them come from different religious backgrounds, and all of you have come together, and we're united to do life together in Christ. And the only way you're going to be able to do this is everybody, even with different opinions, we all have the same approach that we're going to live out these two verses. Guys, these two verses, they're not hard to understand. They are really hard to live out because they so cut against the natural flesh. They so cut against the way I want to do life. 
And, and circumstances of life can really put these verses to the test. You know, these verses are so powerful that if married couples lived them out, this would be the best marriage advice you could ever give to anybody. Live these two verses. Everything else flows from it. Friendships together. Partnerships together. Parents and kids together. Paul, Paul said, if you want to really experience this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So the first point he's saying in this is because of what we experienced in Christ, I must choose to let him change my motivation, my attitude, and my outlook. I must choose. And I would say these verses are not verses you can force on anyone else. I can't come to you and go, oh, you have to do that. Every single person, I've got to choose this personally because of what I've experienced in Christ. When he says that, what do I mean with that? Well, one, what is our natural motivation? Our natural motivation is wanting what I want because I believe I deserve it. That is what, when he says selfish ambition and vain conceit, selfish ambition is wanting what I want. And vain conceit is because I believe I deserve it. And, and the hard part is we're all hardwired this way. We come into the world this way. I mean, when you have a little baby, as cute as they are, what do they do? They tell you all the time what they want because they believe they deserve it. And they're so stinking cute, you give it to them. In fact, that's part of the process is how, how do I train them in a way that life's not about them? But we're naturally wired. I love the way Augustine put it, the church father. He has this Latin phrase, incurvitus in se. Incurvitus in se. And literally the phrase means everybody's soul is curved in on itself. I can't help but make life about me. I can't help but see life through me. And, and Paul, at the very core of it, he says, that has to be broken in Christ. That I'm making the conscious choice, you know what? It's not based on what I want. And it's not based on because I think I deserve it. To do that as well, you, you have to break that natural attitude. You know, our natural attitude is I'm more important than most everybody else. Now, we wouldn't come out and say that. We wouldn't do the anchor man, you know, I'm kind of a big deal around here. But internally, we feel that way. I mean, just test yourself. When, when you're pulling into a, a parking lot and you go to park your car and there's a parking space, how do you feel in that moment if another car comes zooming in and parks right in front of you? You ever heard the phrase road rage? It's like, who do they think they are? And, and it's funny because we judge other people according to their actions. We judge ourselves according to our intentions. And when you're especially driving on the road, you probably see this as much as anything. I experienced it this morning. I, I left this morning. I was driving over here. And as I was driving, I, I looked down and I was trying to adjust the air conditioner, a car I'm not in much. And so I'm trying to adjust the air conditioner. And I look up and I realize that light has already turned red right when I'm going through it. And I can see the guy in the side street, he's kind of giving me that disgust look. And my first thought is, well, yeah, but I was doing the air conditioner and, and you know, I mean, I'm really busy here, so I'm cutting myself all the slack in the world. 
when I'm that guy, I mean, I'll tell you what I say. I always go, idiot, you're going to kill somebody. Oh, I guess you just own the road, mister. I mean, that, that's my first thought because I judge according to the action. I cut myself a lot because I only judge me according to my intentions. And I know what's going on. See, we're, we're pretty quick to evaluate life according to the person we consider the most important, whether we're willing to say that out loud or not. We frame life around us. And then you have that third part, our natural outlook is I have to look out for me. I have to look out for me. Because why? Because nobody else will. I got to take care of me. I got to take care of my rights. I got to take care of what I want. Now, again, these would not be the things that we would naturally say out loud. You're not going to sit down at lunch today and somebody will sit down and go, you know, I'm always looking out for me. I got to take care of me. But it's in our wiring. And if you really want to test it, ask yourself how you feel the next time somebody treats you lowly. The next time somebody treats you like a servant. The next time somebody doesn't respect your position or who you are. Years ago when I was in seminary, um, I, I'd been out pastoring for a while and then we went to seminary. We'd lived overseas and then went to Dallas Seminary and, and was so excited to be there. But after eight years of infertility, when we were at the poorest point in our life at seminary, we got pregnant. And it was awesome, except we had no money. So suddenly I'm working all these jobs. I was working at the seminary leadership center. I had another job that I'd work for another guy. And then I would clean pools. And I hated cleaning pools. Hated cleaning pools. And, and it would never fail. The people who invested the least in their pools always expected their pools to be the cleanest. So never mind the fact their equipment is old and broken down. Man, they're paying you, so you better get it spotless. And I had this one guy, I just, I hated going to his house every time because the pool was so run down. It took forever. And I'll never forget, I was loading up all the equipment and, and I was walking out of the gate. I'd finished the pool and he came walking out. And he walked out, he had this t-shirt, kind of came down to here. And he's eating a jelly donut. It's like two in the afternoon. He's eating a jelly donut. He's got part of it on him. I mean, it's just like, and as I'm walking out of the gate, he goes, hey, hey, pool boy, pool boy. It was a 30-year-old man working on my THM at the time, but he calls me pool boy. And I just froze at the gate and I turned around. He goes, hey, hey, pool boy. You missed a spot right here. And I wanted to say to him, you know, you missed a spot here and here and here, but. And I looked at it, it's just like this one corner. I said, seriously? He said, yeah, I want you to vacuum it again. And I walked over and, you know, I start sinking the hose and getting all the equipment out. And at this point, I'm mad, not just him, I'm mad at God. Like, really? Really, at this point in my life? Really, I gotta do this? I gotta do this for him? And somewhere in the grumbling conversation with God, God just asked this question. When did you get to be so important? I was like, 
that's not the issue here, God. The issue is that guy's treating me like a jerk and he's doing, and again, God's like, no, 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 no. When did you get to be so important? You know, it's a question he'll bring back to me many times. Times where I, I find myself irritated with someone and I realize the irritation is they're not treating me the way I think they should be treating me. Or I'll get an email and I get upset about it. And every so often God will just kind of tap and go, hey, hey, when did you get to be so important that you can't be treated like that? You can't be talked to that way. And, and, and the freedom of just realizing, oh, yeah. God, you're really important. The mission we're about is really important. People you've called me to serve, the church is really important. But I'm not a big deal. Jesus is. See, Paul, Paul says everyone, we're called to bring that mindset when we interact with each other. And if you look at the point there, because of what we experience in Christ, I must choose to humbly consider that others are more important than me and actively look out for their interest. That's the hard part. Where am I actively doing it? Not just passively, okay, there was an opportunity to do that, but literally, actively, I'm looking out for your interest as much as I actively look out for mine. I'm looking out for your opportunities. I'm looking out for your importance. I'm looking out for your life. If everyone did that, how would it change everything? If you had a whole church that's actively, everyone sitting there going, okay, how do I serve them? And how do I take care of them? How do I watch their back? All the things we worry about in our own natural motivation are taken care of because we've got this whole group of people looking out for each other and caring for each other and putting their interests first. And when those opportunities come, we do them. We, we act on them. You know, Robert Tuttle tells about a little boy who, uh, when he was sitting in class, nine years old, and as he's sitting in class, he looks down and realizes he's wet his pants. And at nine, you can imagine a few things worse. The puddle's starting to form under him. He knows the teacher's going to come any minute. And he prays. He's like, Jesus, you got to help me. Because in a minute, every boy in this class is going to make fun of me, and no girl will ever talk to me again in life. And right when he looks up, the teacher's walking toward him. This little girl, Susie, was carrying a goldfish bowl full of water back to the shelf, and she trips, pours the whole thing right on his lap. And he's like, thank you, Jesus. I believe in miracles. <laughs> and the teacher comes over and says, oh, well, let's go change your clothes. And they go get clothes out of the PE closet. And when he comes back, everybody's cleaning up and they're all so apologetic. Oh, we're sorry that happened to you. And then they turn on Susie. They're like, Susie, you're such a klutz. Susie, don't even help. Susie, sit down. And it goes on the rest of the day. Everybody's sympathetic to him. Everybody's scornful of Susie. At the end of the day, he, he's at the bus stop and Susie's standing there and he walks over to her and he kind of whispers, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And she smiled and said, I wet my pants at school once too. 
See, just a little action. But instead of just thinking about herself, she's looking out for somebody else. What, what would it be like in a household where everybody lived this way? What would it be like in a marriage where everybody lived this way? In a church where everybody lived this way? And if you look at it, you go, it'd be hard to be done. Look, look how Paul concludes this passage. Verses 5 to 11 is this great theological passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As you see in your notes, Christ purposefully descended in humility because he placed our interest above his own. He purposefully descended. It's an unbelievable passage that we can't fully understand how Christ, who is fully God, is willing to release all that was his. Now, he never stopped being God, but he became fully human. And if you look at that passage, he didn't just become human, he became a servant. He didn't just become a servant, he became a servant who's willing to die. He didn't just become a servant who's willing to die, he's one who's willing to die the worst death possible, death on the cross, as a sacrifice for all our sins. This descent to greatness. And it's our model you know, in our household, we've got a door jam. With having so many kids, we mark as they get older. And so you've got this, all these marks for different ones, especially the boys. My last four are boys. And they're getting taller and taller and taller. Because we go, that's how you mark. Man, that's when you get bigger. But you know, in the kingdom of God, if you really want to mark it, mark it down. When you get lower. When you're willing to serve. And the beauty of this, look what God does. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love this because Christ's humiliation resulted in the greatest exaltation. This is God's pattern. He says, you have this time period where you serve, and this is what it looks like. It's, it's putting others before yourself. It's putting other interests. It's treating other people as more important. It's looking for those opportunities to serve them just like Christ did. He placed our interest above his own. He came to his father. He says, not my will, thy will, your plan for these people. And that descent down led to the greatest exaltation. Guys, when we live this way, it's the greatest act of faith. Because then you recognize, by faith, I'm not throwing my life away on people that don't deserve it. I'm trusting God and I'm following his model. I'm not so caught up in climbing the ladder of success. I'd rather descend the pathway of true greatness. Because everything's different in the kingdom of God. And as we do this, you can see your final two points in the note. When we personally, when you personally live this way, we reveal him to the world. That's what it means to be salt and light. That's what it means to show him to the world. And, and when we collectively, as a church, live this way, the world knows we're his. They see Jesus. 
Guys, this is one of those passages, I love preaching it here, and it really preaches well when you're in this setting. It's hard to live when you get out there and I'm driving in traffic, and I don't want to treat people this way. When, when somebody calls me and they need me, when my neighbors that I'm building relationships with, and I want to see them come to Christ, but they actually want me to come over and do yard work when college football's on because they don't have the sense to realize you watch college football right now and you do yard work later. It's in those moments of how will I serve. I'll close with a story of a guy named Jeffrey Collins who worked at a, a ministry, Love in Action. And uh, it's a hard ministry. They serve some of the neediest people. And a lot of their clientele are people that were dying with AIDS and dealing with other diseases, and they just go serve them. But Jeffrey, it was 5 o'clock on Friday, and he was spent. He was done. He had put in a 60-hour week, and he already had plans that evening with friends when the phone rang. And on it was Jimmy. He said, hey, Jeff, I'm really bad. Can you come? And Jimmy was dying with AIDS. And Jeff hung up the phone, and by his own description, he hung it up mad. He's like, no, I can't come. This is my night. This is the only time I have off. And he drove over there mad and walked into the apartment, and, and there was Jimmy laying on the sofa there. He's covered with a blanket, and he'd gotten sick to his stomach and just thrown up in front of the sofa there. It's the room, the stench of it. And Jeff went and got a bucket of soap and water, and he's just scrubbing it. And Jimmy was like, oh, man, thank you for coming, Jeff. And as he described it, he, he didn't even want to talk to him. You ever been there? And then Russ came down, the roommate. And as Russ came and sat in the chair, he smelled the vomit, and it made him sick, and he threw up on the floor right in front. And just like, great. And he finished Jimmy. And he walked over and he started scrubbing in front of Russ. And Russ just kept staring at him. And Russ goes, I understand. I understand. And Jimmy finally said, Russ, what do you understand? And he said, I understand who Jesus is. He's like Jeff, isn't he? This Jesus you've been telling me about. And Jeff stopped dead. And everything in him thought, I don't feel like Jesus right now. But you know what he was doing? He was imitating Christ. Even when he didn't feel like it. And this guy, Russ, that he'd been sharing the gospel with and sharing the gospel with and sharing the gospel with, who had those blind eyes, in that moment, his eyes opened. And he goes, oh, this is what Jesus is like. And Jeff had the opportunity that night to sit with Russ, and Russ came to Christ. Because he, 
he didn't just talk about these passages. He didn't just preach about these passages. He didn't just look at them in a service and go, man, those are good passages. On a night when it costs something, he lived it. Guys, if there was ever a time period for the church to live like Jesus did in a world that needs to see it, it's now. That together we would start by treating each other this way. But then as we collectively do that, for a world that needs to see Jesus, they see him with new eyes. And this is the prayer of my life. I'm trying to live these verses, not just preach them. And I pray them for you because you're going back to different churches and different places, but you could be the catalyst in your place to bring unbelievable change in a time where it's desperately needed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you that Paul didn't just uh, write this. He lived it. Thank you that Christ didn't just tell us to do this from on high. He showed us what it looked like on his knees, in his life. Lord, I I pray for each of us here. I I just pray in this time period, as church and all the churches that are represented and as fellow believers, could you show us how to love each other this way and love the world this way so that people could experience you? Lord, thank you for those who've gathered. Thank you for this privilege of being together. May you use today and the next few days to open our hearts and minds to all that you want to do in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.